spend our time diddling with our computers than using them to do something productive. If you don't believe this, pick up a copy of Byte, B-Y-T-E, magazine. This is the real name, I swear. Pick it up sometime and read a column in there by a guy named Jerry Prunell. Jerry is an author and a famous computer guru, and every month his column has basically the same plot, which is, one, Jerry tries to make some seemingly simple change to one of his computers, such as connected to a new printer. Two, Everything goes hideously wrong, and the computer completely stops working. Sometimes several of his other computers also stop working. Sometimes there are massive power outages all over the West Coast. Poor Larry spends days trying to get everything straightened out. Three, finally, with the help of customer service and other computer experts all over the world, Jerry gets his computer working again approximately the way it used to, and he writes several thousand words about it for Byte. I swear it's virtually the same plot month after month, and yet it's a popular column in a magazine that appeals primarily to knowledgeable computer people. Why? Because Jerry's coming right out and admitting that we knowledgeable computer people primarily use our computers for messing around. Windows 95, trademark, being virtually impossible for a normal human to comprehend, is ideal for the purpose. Also, thanks to its advanced graphical capabilities, Windows 95 trademark, enables you to put the little trademark sign after Windows 95. In fact, you can put all kinds of little things in there, such as Windows 95 registered, Windows 95 unhappy face symbol, Windows 95 time bomb symbol, and of course, Windows 95 Bill Gates is a winner. I'll have more to say about dressing up your documents in the chapter on word processing, or how to press an enormous number of keys without ever actually writing anything. And here's another important capability that I have thanks to the powerful studliness of my computer and Windows 95 skull and crossbone symbol. I can do multitasking, which means I have the ability to run several programs at the same time, which means I can waste time faster than ever before. For example... As I'm writing this chapter, I am also running a program called Sim Tower, trademark, registered, copyright, in which you can build a simulated building with little simulated elevators, escalators, offices, hotel rooms, and so on, and then all these little simulated people come, and you have to try to keep them safe and happy. This is not easy. In fact, during the preceding paragraph, when I was trying to solve the complex word processing problem of how to make the skull and crossbones mark, I received an urgent message informing me that a terrorist had planted a bomb in my building and was demanding that I pay $1 million ransom. Also, I have office workers demanding parking spaces, and a number of my hotel rooms have been invaded by roaches the size of Rush Limbaugh registered. Right now, I'm dealing with these problems and writing this informative book about computers and using a program called ABM Commander to protect several cities from nuclear destruction and checking my email to get important guidance, such as, where the hell is my computer book, from my editors. Thanks to the miracle of computers, I am able to accomplish all of these tasks simultaneously in stark contrast to famous authors of the pre-computer era, such as Chaucer, who had to stop writing altogether when he wanted to play ABM Commander. Also, he had to use a manual typewriter. My point is that I have learned to use my computer as a productive tool in my everyday life, and you can too, by applying the many helpful tips and practical techniques that you'll find in this book. Dream on.
Also, you can find out how to get on the Internet and make contact with hundreds, even thousands of people whom you would otherwise never have had anything to do with voluntarily. But even if you don't use a computer, even if you're just an ordinary human being or a member of the legal profession, this book can help you better understand computers, these amazing devices that play such an important role in your life every minute of every day from the moment at 6 a.m. each morning when you punch your clock radio to make it shut up. Think about it. Inside that clock radio is a miniature computer, an electronic brain that despite being no larger than the reproductive organs of a standard female mosquito, is capable, thanks to the miracle of microcircuitry, of understanding not only basic commands such as on, off, and alarm, but also advanced data processing concepts such as snooze. And that's just the beginning. As clock radios become more intelligent, they'll start to actually anticipate your actions. Even as you read these words, top appliance scientists are working on a prototype clock radio of tomorrow that will have little feet so that after it sounds the alarm, it can dart around the nightstand evading your fist. Eventually, your clock radio will be so smart that it will figure out after being punched a few times that you don't really want to wake up at 6 a.m. Instead of sounding the alarm, it will tiptoe quietly out of the room, telephone your workplace, and mimicking your voice, inform your employer that you're quitting. A utopian pipe dream, you say? An overly optimistic scenario of life in the high-tech future? I don't think so. Not when we consider the many incredible benefits that we are receiving from computers right now, today, in virtually every area of our everyday lives, including medicine. Every day, in every town, there are heartwarming stories like this one. A 53-year-old man suddenly starts experiencing severe chest pains and shortness of breath. An ambulance rushes him to a hospital where, as his condition rapidly worsens, doctors administer a series of tests, the results of which are instantaneously transmitted via a special fiber-optic telephone cable to a giant medical database computer a thousand miles away. Almost instantaneously, an electronic message comes back informing the doctors that the patient, whom the computer has mistaken for another man with a similar name who actually died 38 months earlier, has fallen behind in his car payments and should be denied credit at the hospital. The computer then, without even having to be asked, disconnects the patient's electrical and phone services and cancels every one of his credit cards. All this is accomplished in less time than it takes you to burp. Transportation when you fly on a commercial airline, you experience the security and comfort of knowing that even though you may be 35,000 feet in the air, traveling at over 500 miles an hour under conditions of obscured visibility, not one single passenger on your airplane paid the same fare as any other passenger. How is this possible? It's possible because the airline industry uses powerful and extremely imaginative fare-inventing computers which are constantly being improved as the airline industry works toward the day, and this will happen in your lifetime, when every single airline passenger pays a different fare from every other passenger on every other flight in history. Just recently, in a breakthrough step toward this goal, a Chicago attorney wishing to fly to Philadelphia was required to pay two cows and a goat. This ticket required a Saturday night stayover with two-sheet penalty for any changes. Communications. 
Today, most of us take it for granted that if we urgently need to reach a person, no matter where that person is in the world, we can simply press a few buttons on a telephone keypad, and within microseconds, thanks to the computerized global satellite telecommunications network, be connected with a microprocessor-controlled, multifunction voicemail machine informing us that the person is not available. But that is only part of the story. Thanks to computers, inanimate objects are now able to contact us. I'm not referring here to the computers that call us up at exactly dinner time to ask us pre-recorded consumer survey questions about our views on, for example, laxatives. Nor am I referring to the highly personalized letters that we receive from computers that know our name and are not about to let us forget it. Dear Mr. Dave Barry, have you, Mr. Dave Barry, ever stopped to think about what would happen to your family, the Mr. Dave Barry family, in the tragic event that you, Mr. Dave Barry, were to tragically become involved in an accident resulting in the loss of one or more of your Mr. Dave Barry's key arms and or legs? Well, we here at Mutual General Admiral Mineral Insurance spend most of our time worrying about exactly this. We sure hope that Mr. Dave Barry has adequate coverage are our exact words, which is why today we want to offer you, Mr. Dave, no, the specific example of computer communication that I'm thinking of here is a widely publicized, absolutely true 1995 news story. You might have read about this, about a woman in Balerica, Massachusetts, who had an 800 telephone number for her home business on which she received a mysterious telephone call every 90 minutes, day and night, for six months. She'd answer the phone, but there was never anybody there, only silence. It was driving her crazy, but she didn't want to disconnect the phone because she was afraid she'd lose business. Finally, she contacted the authorities who tracked down the source of the calls, which it turned out to be, I swear, I'm not making this up, an unused oil tank in the basement of a home in Potomac, Maryland. This tank was equipped with a computerized device programmed to call a fuel company when the tank was empty. But the fuel company had shut down, and its phone number was reassigned to the Massachusetts woman's business. In other words, thanks to the miracle of computers, this woman was being harassed by an empty oil tank hundreds of miles away, a technological achievement that would have been considered impossible just a few short the 60s, for example, only lasted four years, at least that's all I remember, decades ago. In any event, the oil tank is now disconnected, which is good, because otherwise it would probably have wound up registered to vote, and you know it's a Perot supporter. And speaking of voting, nowhere are the benefits we receive from computers more flagrant than in the area of government. Without computers, the government would be unable to function at the level of effectiveness and efficiency that we have come to expect. This is because the primary function of the government is and here I am quoting directly from the U.S. Constitution, to spew out paper. This can be very time-consuming if you use the old-fashioned method of having human beings sit down and manually think about what each individual piece of paper is actually going to say. This is why today's government uses computers, which are capable of cranking out millions of documents per day without any regard whatsoever for their content, thereby freeing government employees for more important responsibilities, such as not answering their phones. I have here a perfect example of a government computer in action, brought to my attention by Joyce Evans of Larkspur, California, who sent me a copy of a computerized notice that her son, a graduate student, received from the Internal Revenue Service. This notice entitled... Request for tax payment, 
states that her son's tax return showed that his total tax withheld, plus other payments totaled $1,518.90, but his total tax due was $1,519. In other words, Joyce's son was 10 cents short on his taxes. Now, if a human being were dealing with this matter, he or she might, you always run this risk with humans, actually think about it, and he or she might come to the conclusion that it's stupid to waste government resources hassling an obviously honest taxpayer over ten lousy cents. The problem with this kind of thinking, of course, is that if you let one taxpayer slide on his ten cents, then you're going to let another one slide, and pretty soon you've let ten million taxpayers avoid paying that final dime, which would mean that the federal government would have one million fewer dollars to spend on, for example, the strategic helium reserve. Perhaps you don't believe we actually have a strategic helium reserve. Perhaps you are a fool. But fortunately for the nation, a computer handled this situation. Without hesitating for a nanosecond, it fired off a notice informing the graduate student that he owed the ten cents, plus a penalty of $12.41, plus interest of 78 cents, for a total of $13.29. And you can bet that the student paid it, because otherwise, if you don't believe this, you have never dealt with the IRS. The computer would order him to pay more money and then more and more until finally one morning he'd wake up to find his dormitory surrounded by federal tanks. This is why we taxpayers do whatever the IRS computers tell us. We know that once they get a cyber bee in their cyber bonnets, no power on earth can get it out. We're just hoping that the IRS computers don't start exchanging ideas with the airline fare computers and we start getting tax notices ordering us to remit, say, six ducks plus a two-chicken penalty. Education. Picture this scenario. It's 8 p.m. on a weekday night, and your 12-year-old child suddenly remembers that he has a major school report on the Spanish-American War due tomorrow. He needs to do some research, but the library is closed. No problem. Your cyber-savvy youngster simply turns on your computer, activates your modem, logs on the Internet, the revolutionary information superhighway, and in a matter of minutes is exchanging pictures of naked women with other youngsters all over North America. I could go on and on, listing the ways in which computers enrich our everyday lives, but I've made my point, which is that we live in the computer age and you need to get with the program. You are standing in the airport terminal of life and the jet plane of the 21st century is about to take off. You must make a choice. Do you remain in the terminal eating the stale vending machine food of out